Hi, welcome to Schuler Science. It's been a while since I've done a podcast in these uh, new times while we're all being kept away from one another. I thought that I would share some science fiction short stories. Um, I wanted to share one today called Inspiration by Ben Bova. Who inspires you? The greatest heroes of our time had their sources of inspiration too. But what if they hadn't? How different would their world be? He was as close to despair as only a lad of 17 can be. But you heard what the professor said, he moaned. It is all finished. There is nothing left to do. The lad spoke in German, of course. I had to translate it for Mr. Wells. Wells shook his head. I failed to see why such splendid news should upset the boy so. I said to the youngster, Our British friend says you should not lose hope. Perhaps the professor is mistaken. Mistaken? How could that be? He's a famous man, a nobleman, a baron. I had to smile. The lad's stubborn disdain for authority figures would become world famous one day, but it was not in evidence this summer afternoon in A.D. 1896. We are sitting in a sidewalk cafe with a magnificent view of the Dunab and the city of Linz. Delicious odors of cooking sausages and bakery pastries wafted from the kitchen inside. Despite the splendid warm sunshine, though, I felt chilled and weak, drained of what little strength I had remaining. Where is that blasted waitress? Wells grumbled. We've been here half hour, at the least. Why not just lean back and enjoy the afternoon, sir, I suggested tiredly. This is the best view in all the area. Herbert George Wells was not a patient man. He had just scored a minor success in Britain with his first novel and decided to treat himself to a vacation in Austria. He came to that decision under my influence, of course, but he did not realize that yet. At age 29, he had a lean, hungry look to him that would mellow only gradually with the coming years of prestige and prosperity. Albert was round-faced and plumpish, still had his baby fat on him, although he had started a mustache as almost teenage boys did in those days. It was a thin, scraggly black wisp, nowhere near the full white brush it would become, if all went well with my mission. It had taken me an enormous amount of maneuvering to get Wells and this teenager to the same place at the same time. The effort had nearly exhausted all my energies. Young Albert had come to see Professor Thompson with his own eyes, of course. Wells had been more difficult. He wanted to see Salzburg, the birthplace of Mozart. I had taken him instead to Linz with a thousand assurances that he would find the trip worthwhile. He complained endlessly about Linz, the city's lack of beauty, the sour smell of its narrow streets, the discomfort of our hotel, the dearth restaurants where one could get decent food, by which he meant burnt mutton. Not even the city's justly famous Linz and Torch pleased him. Not as good as a decent trifle, he growls, not as good by half. I, of course, knew several versions of Linz that were even less pleasing, including one in which the city was nothing more than charred radioactive rubble and the Danube so contaminated 
that it glowed at night all the way down to the Black Sea. I shuddered at that vision and tried to concentrate on the task at hand. It had almost required physical force to get Wells to walk across the Danube on the ancient stone bridge and up the Postlingberg to this little sidewalk cafe. He had huffed with anger when he had started out from our hotel at the city central square, then soon was puffing with exertion as we toiled up the steep hill. I was breathless from the climb also. In later years, a tram would make the ascent, but on this particular afternoon, we had obliged to walk. He had been mildly surprised to see the teenager trudging up the Prestecho Street just a few steps ahead of us, recognizing that unruly crop of dark hair from the audience at Thompson's lecture that morning. Wells had graciously invited Albert to join us for a drink. We deserve a cold lemonade or two after this blasted climb, he said, eyeing me unhappily. Panting from the climb, I translated to Albert, Mr. Wells invites you to have a refreshment with us. The youngster was pitifully grateful, although he would order tea rather than lemonade. It was obvious that Thompson's lecture had shattered him badly. So now we sat on uncomfortable cast iron chairs and waited. They for the drinks they ordered, me for the inevitable. I let the warm sunshine soak into me and hoped it would rebuild at least some of my strength. The view was little short of breathtaking. The brooding castle across the river, the Danube itself streaming smoothly and actually blue as it glittered in the sunlight. The lakes beyond the city and the blue-white snow peaks of the Austrian Alps hovering in the distance like ghostly petals of some immense unworldly flower. But Wells complained, that has to be the ugliest castle I've ever seen. What did the gentleman say? Albert asked. He is stricken by the sight of the Emperor Friedrich's castle, I answered sweetly. Ah, uh, yes, it has a certain grandeur, does it, doesn't it? Wells had all the impatience and frustrated journalist. Where is the lazy waitress? Where is our lemonade? I'll find the waitress, I said, rising uncertainly from my hard iron chair. As his ostensible tour guide, I had to remind in character for a while longer, no matter how tired I felt. But then I saw what I had been looking for. Look, I pointed down the steep street. Here comes the professor himself. William Thompson, first baron, Kelvin of Largs, was striding up the pavement with much more bounce and energy than any of us had shown. He was 71, his silver gray hair, thinner than his impressive gray beard, lean almost to the point of looking frail, yet he climbed the ascent that had made my heart thunder in my ears as if we were strolling amiably across the campus quadrangle. Wells shot to his feet and leaned across the iron rail to the cafe. Good afternoon, your lordship. For a moment, I thought he was going to tug at his forelock. Kelvin squinted at him. You were in my audience this morning, were you not? Yes, my lord. Permit me to introduce myself. I am H.G. Wells. Ah, you're a physicist. A writer, sir. 
journalist? Formerly, now I'm a novelist. Really? How keen? Young Albert and I had also risen to our feet. Wells introduced us properly and invited Kelvin to join us. Although I must say, Wells murmured as Kelvin came around the railing and took the empty chair to our table, that the service here leaves quite a bit to be desired. Oh, you have to know how to deal with the tetonic temperament, said Kelvin jovially as we all sat down. He banged the flat of his hand on the table so hard it made us jump. Service, he bellowed, service here. Miraculously, the waitress appeared from the doorway and trod stubbornly to our table. She looked very unhappy, sullen in fact. Sallow, pouting face with brooding brown eyes and downturned mouth, she pushed back a lock of hair that had strayed across her forehead. We've been waiting for our lemonade, Wells said to her, and now this gentleman has joined us. Permit me, sir, I said. It was my job, after all. In German, I asked her to bring us three lemonades and the tea Albert had ordered and to do it quickly. She looked at the four of us over as if we were smugglers or criminals of some sort, her eyes lingering briefly on Albert and returned without a word or even a nod and went back inside the cafe. I stole a glance at Albert. His eyes were riveted on Kelvin. His lips parted as if he wanted to speak but could not work up the nerve. He ran a hand nervously through his thick mop of hair. Kelvin seemed perfectly at ease, smiling affably. His hands laced across his stomach just below his beard. He was the man of authority, acknowledged by the world as the leading scientific figure of his generation. Can it be really true, Albert blurted at last? Have we learned everything of physics that can be learned? He spoke in German, of course, the only language he knew. I immediately translated for him exactly as he asked his question. Once understood what Albert was asking, Kelvin nodded his gray old head sagely. Yes, yes, the young men in the laboratories today are putting the final dots over the eyes, the final crossings of the T's. We've just about finished physics, and we know at last there is all to be known. Albert looked crushed. Kelvin did not need a translator to understand the youngster's emotion. If you are thinking of a career in physics, young man, then I heartily advise you to think again. By the time you complete your education, there will be nothing left for you to do. Nothing? Wells asked as I translated. Nothing at all? Oh, add a few decimal places here and there, I suppose. Tidy up a bit, that sort of thing. Albert had failed his mission to test to the Federal Polytechnic in Zurich. He had never been so particularly good student. My goal was to get him to apply again to the Polytechnic and pass the exams. Visibly screwing up his courage, Albert asked, But what about the work of Wolfenjagen? Once I translated, Kelvin knit his brow. Hmm. Oh, you mean that report about mysterious rays that go through solid walls? X-rays, is it? Albert nodded eagerly. Stuff and nonsense, snapped the old man. Absolute bosh. He may impress a few medical men who know little of science, but his x-rays do not exist. Impossible. German daydreaming. 
Albert looked at me with his whole life trembling in piteous eyes, I interpreted. The professor fears that x-rays may be illusory, although he does not yet have enough evidence to decide one way or the other. Albert's face lit up. Then there is hope. We have not discovered everything as yet. I was thinking about how to translate that for Kelvin when Wells ran out of patience. Where is that blasted waitress? I was grateful for the interruption. I will find her, sir. Dragging myself up from the table, I left the three of them, Wells and Kelvin, chatting amiably while Albert swiveled his head back and forth, understanding not a word. Every joint in my body ached, and I knew there was nothing anyone in this world could do to help me. The cafe was dark inside and smelled stale. The waitress was standing at the counter, speaking rapidly, angrily, to the stout cook in the low venomous tone. The cook was polishing glasses in the end of his apron, and he looked grim, and once he noticed me embarrassed. Three glasses of lemonade stood on a round tray next to her with a single glass of tea. The lemonades were getting warm and watery, the tea cooling, while she blistered the cook's ears. I interrupted her visitor's monologue. The gentlemen want their drinks, I said in German. She whirled on me, her eyes furious. The gentlemen may have their lemonades when they get rid of that infernal Jew. Taken aback somewhat, I glanced at the cook and he turned away from me. No use asking him to do it, the waitress hissed. He will not serve Jews either. I do not serve Jews and neither will he. The cafe was almost empty this late in the afternoon. In the dim shadows, I could make out only a pair of elderly gentlemen quietly smoking their pipes and a foursome, apparently two married couples, eating sandwiches. A six-year-old boy knelt in a far-off end of the cafe, laboriously scrubbing the wooden floor. If it's uh, too much trouble for you, I said, and I started to reach for the tray. She clutched my outstretched arm. No, no Jews will be served here, never. I could have brushed her off if my strength had not been drained away. I could have broken every bone in her body and the cook's too. But I was nearing the end of my tether and I knew it. Very well, I will take only the lemonades. She glowered at me for a moment and then let her hand drop away. I removed the glass of tea from the tray and left it on the counter. I carried the lemonades out to the warm afternoon sunshine. As I sat the tray on our table, Wells asked, They have no tea. Albert knew better. They refused to serve Jews, he guessed. His voice was flat, unemotional, neither surprised nor saddened. I nodded as I said in English, Yes, they refused to serve Jews. Jewish? Calvin asked, reaching for his lemonade. The teenager did not need a translation. He replied, I was born in Germany. I'm now a citizen of Switzerland. I have no religion, but yes, I am a Jew. Sitting next to him, I offered him my lemonade. No, no, he said with a sorrowful little smile. I would merely upset them further. I think perhaps I should leave. Not quite yet, I said. I have something I want to show you. And I reached into the inner pocket of my jacket and pulled out a thick sheaf of paper I'd been carrying with me since I started out this mission. I noticed that my hand trembled slightly. What is it? Albert asked. I made a little bow of my head in Wells' direction. This, 
translation of Mr. Wells' excellent story, The Time Machine. Wells looked surprised, Albert curious. Calvin smacked his lips and put himself half-drained glass down. Time machine? asked young Albert. What's he talking about? Calvin asked. I explained. I have taken the liberty of translating Mr. Wells' story about a time machine in the hope of attracting German publishers. Wells said, he never told me. But Calvin asked, time machine? What on earth would a time machine be? Wells forced an embarrassed, self-depreciating little smile. It's merely the subject of a tale I've written, my lord. A machine that can travel through time into the past, you know, or uh, the future. Calvin fixed him in a beady gaze. Travel to the past or the future? It is fiction, of course, Wells said apologetically. Of course. Albert seemed fascinated. But how could a machine travel through time? How do you explain it? Looking thoroughly uncomfortable under Kelvin's wilting eye, Wells said hesitantly, Well, if you consider time as a dimension... A dimension? asked Kelvin. Rather like the three dimensions of space. Time as a fourth dimension? Yes, rather... Albert nodded eagerly as I translated. Time is a dimension, yes. Whenever we move through space, we move through time as well, do we not? Space and time, four dimensions, all bound together. Kelvin mumbled something indecipherable and reached for his half-finished lemonade. And one could travel through the dimension, Albert asked, into the past or the future? Utter bilge, Kelvin muttered, slamming his empty glass on the table. Quite impossible. It is merely fiction, said Wells, almost whining. Only an idea toyed with in order to... Fiction, of course, said Kelvin with great finality. Quite abruptly, he pushed himself to his feet. I'm afraid I must be going. Thank you for the lemonade. He left us sitting there and started back down the street, his face flushed. From the way his beard moved, I could see he was muttering to himself. I'm afraid we've offended him, said Wells. But how could he become angry over an idea, Albert wondered. The thought seemed to stun him. Why should a new idea infuriate a man of science? The waitress bustled across the patio to our table. When is this Jew leaving, she hissed at me, eyes blazing with fury. I won't have him stinking up our cafe any longer. Obviously shaken, but with much dignity as a 17-year-old could muster, Albert rose to his feet. I will leave, madame. I have imposed on your so gracious hospitality long enough. Wait, I said, grabbing his jacket sleeve. Take this with you. Read it. I think you'll enjoy it. He smiled at me. I could see the sadness that would haunt his eyes forever. Thank you, sir. You have been most kind to me. He took the manuscript and left us. I saw him already reading it as he walked slowly down the street towards the bridge back to Lintz proper. I hoped he would not trip and break his neck as he ambled down the steep street, his nose stuck in the manuscript. The waitress watched him too. Filthy Jew, they're everywhere. They get themselves into everything. That will be quite enough from you, I said as sternly as I could manage. She glared at me and headed back for the counter. Wells looked more puzzled than annoyed even after I explained what had happened. 
It is their country, after all, he said with a shrug of his narrow shoulders. If you don't want to mingle with Jews, there's not much we can do about it, is there? I took a sip of my warm, watery lemonade, not trusting myself to come up with a properly polite response. There was only one timeline in which Albert lived long enough to make an effect on the world, and there were dozens where he languished in obscurity or was gassed in one of the death camps. Wells's expression turned curious. I didn't know you had translated my story. To see if perhaps a German publisher would be interested in it, I lied. But you gave the manuscript to that Jewish fellow. I have another copy of the translation. You do? Would you? My time was almost up, I knew. I had powerful urge at the end of the charade. The young Jewish fellow might change the world, you know. Wells laughed. I mean it, I said. You think your story is merely a piece of fiction. Let me tell you, it's much more than that. Really? Time travel will become possible one day. Don't be ridiculous. But I could see the sudden astonishment in his eyes and the memory. It was I who suggested the idea of time travel to him. We had discussed it for months back when he had been working for newspapers. I had kept the idea in the forefront of his imagination until he finally sat down and dashed off his novel. I hunched closer to him, leaned my elbows wearily on the table. Suppose Kelvin is wrong. Suppose there is much to physics than he suspects, than he even suspects. How could that be? Wells asked. That lad is reading your story. It will open his eyes to new vistas, new possibilities. Wells cast a suspicious glance at me. You're pulling my leg. I forced a smile, not altogether. You would do well to pay attention to that scientist. Discover over the coming years, you could build a career writing about it. You could become known as a prophet if you play your cards properly. His face took on the strangest expression I had ever seen. He did not want to believe me, and yet he did. He was suspicious, curious, doubtful, and yearning. All at the same time, Above everything else, he was ambitious, thirsting for fame. Like every writer, he wanted to have the world acknowledge his genius. I told him as much as I dared, as the afternoon drifted on and the shadows lengthened, and the sun sank behind the distant mountains, and the warmth of the day slowly gave way to an uneasy, deepening chill. I gave him carefully veiled hints of the future. A future, one I wanted him to promote. Wells could have no conception of the realities of time travel, of course. There was no frame of reference in his tidy 19th century English mind of the infinite branches of the future. He was incapable of imagining the horrors that lay in store. How could he be? Time branches endlessly, and only a few precious handful of those branches managed to avoid utter disaster. Could I show him his beloved London obliterated by fusion bombs or the entire northern hemisphere of Earth depopulated by man-made plagues or a devastated world turned into savagery that made his Morlocks seem compassionate? Could I explain to him the energies involved in time travel or damage they did to the human body? The fact that time travelers were volunteers sent on suicide missions desperately trying to preserve a timeline that saved at least a portion of the human race? 
the best future I could offer him was a 20th century tortured by world wars and genocide. That was the best I could do. So all I did was hint as gently and subtly as I could, trying to guide him toward that best of all possible futures, horrible though it would seem to him. I could neither control nor coerce anyone. All I could do was offer a bit of guidance until the radiation dose from my trip through time finally killed me. Wells was happily oblivious to my pain. He did not even notice the perspiration that beaded my brow despite the chilling breeze that heralded nightfall. You appear to be telling me, he said at last, that my writings will have some sort of positive effect on the world. They already have, I replied with a genuine smile. His brows rose. That teenage lad is reading your story. Your concept of time as a dimension has already started his fertile mind working. That young student will change the world, I said, for better. Really? Really, I said, trying to sound confident. I knew there were still a thousand pitfalls in young Albert's path, and I would not live long enough to help him pass them. Perhaps other was, but there were no guarantees. I knew that if Albert did not reach his full potential, if he were turned away by the university again, or murdered in the coming Holocaust, the future I was attempting to preserve would disappear in a global catastrophe that could end the human race forever. My task was to save as much of humanity as I could. I had accomplished a feeble first step in saving humankind, but only a first step. Albert was reading the time machine tale and starting to think that Kelvin was blind to the real world. But there was so much more to do, so very much more. We sat there in the deepening shadows of the approaching twilight, Wells and I, each of us wrapped in our own thoughts about the future. Despite his best English self-control, Wells was smiling contentedly. He saw a future in which he would be hailed as a prophet. I hoped it would work out that way. It was an immense task that I had undertaken. I felt tired, gloomy, daunted by the immensity of it all. Worst of all, I would never know if I succeeded or not. When the waitress bustled over to our table, Well, have you finished or are you going to stay here all night? Even without a translation, Wells understood her tone. Let's go, he said, scraping his chair across the flagstone. I pushed myself to my feet, threw a few coins on the table. The waitress scooped them up immediately and called into the cafe. Come here and scrub down this table at once. The six-year-old boy came trudging across the patio, lugging the heavy wooden pail of water. He stumbled and almost dropped it. Water sloshed onto his mother's legs. She grabbed him by the ear and lifted him nearly off his feet. A faint, tortured squeak issued from the boy's gritted teeth. Be quiet and do your work properly, she told her son, her voice murderously low. If I let your father know how lazy you are. The six-year-old's eyes went wide with terror as his mother let her threat dangle in the air between them. Scrub that table good, Adolf, his mother told him. Get rid of that filthy juice stink. 
I looked down at the boy. His eyes were burning with shame and rage and hatred. Save as much of the human race as you can, I told myself. But it was already too late to save him. Are you coming? Wells called to me. Yes, I said, tears in my eyes. It's getting dark, isn't it? So, you need to think about it. There's a lot of history here. This is a work of science fiction, a little historical fiction. The author never provides the last names of Albert or Adolf, but it seems clear that they were important historical figures too. Do you know who they are? Think about their identities. Is there a way that you recognize them as the story was being told? What did the narrator mean when he said, He knew several versions of Lintz that were even less pleasing. Time traveling is essentially a suicide mission. Why would anybody want to volunteer? I don't know if I would. And why did the time traveler have tears in his eyes at the end of the story? So much more here to explore, friends. Check in again. I will provide some additional readings. And you should consider reading on. Um, Check out the Anne Arundel County Public Library for, or your local library, uh, for H.G. Wells and the Time Machine. Good luck and happy reading.